Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about rates, inventory, and how the Fed is engineering a recession. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Matt Dowd, Vice President of Product Management at ICE Mortgage Technology, about mortgage automation. Matt, what challenges are customers facing around adoption? I think the challenges lenders face with adoption are fairly consistent and evident, but you know, the real question is how to solve the adoption question. So it goes down really to change management and perceived value. Um, without getting users on board, you're gonna be hard pressed to make any progress. So you have to do that with training, 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 and training. And the second piece of the puzzle is really ensuring that you're able to provide the value to your users. So you're gonna need quantifiable and empirical data that shows how implementing and embracing this type of technology is going to help them do their job. That's really important. And listeners, you can find out more at icemortgagetechnology.com. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is wonderful to be here, Sarah. Great to have you here. Lots to talk about. Let's start with demand, mortgage demand. Yes. And just in general, housing demand now, we have pretty much almost six months of data starting from November 9th. And the reason I like to talk about November 9th is because on October 27th, what we wrote for Housing Wire was the case for lower mortgage rates. On that day, rates were above seven. People talk about maybe 8% mortgage rates, stuff like that. And uh, on that day, the Fed's main recessionary indicator had gone off. The growth rate of inflation you know, was, was topping out, but uh, the dollar was getting stronger back then. Things that drive the bond yields up, usually for a, a, a cycle kind of peak. So that was, you know, talking about the premise of that. And what's what's occurred is rates fell from seven point three seven down to five point nine nine percent. And the reason that's important is that housing demand has stabilized. It, regardless of who you are or what you believe in. The data has now has six months of this stabilization, uh, uh, and we're bouncing off kind of the the MBA purchase application data is bouncing off of levels that we saw in 2014. Uh, that was the last time actually inventory grew in America uh, when mortgage demand collapsed, days on market grew, weakness in demand allows inventory to accumulate, and then after 2014, demand started to pick up. So we have now historical data going back 13 years and going back six months to show us that when mortgage rates get down towards 6%, the demand gets better. It stabilizes from a waterfall dive. And because total active listings are still historically low, and we've never saw the oversupplied marketplace that people like Ivy Zellman and other people have been talking about, Inventory is not that high. If you have stable demand, that's the market we are dealing with today. So irrelevant to what anybody said four months ago, three months ago, two months ago, we have numbers here to prove that human beings might not tell you the truth sometimes. <laughs> and the duration to me matters. I always say you need at least 
like 12 to 16 weeks of data to kind of see if you have a trend. And we, so we have six months here. And what it's all, what it's done is that we had a waterfall dive in demand last year, a historic. I, I still think to this day, people do not appreciate what happened last year. That was a, a, a crazy event in the history of economics going back many decades. And we've just bounced off of that in a very aggressive fashion. That month-to-month sales report was big. That was 12 weeks of data coming into that big existing home sales report. So as long as demand is stable, that's the housing market that we're dealing with in 2023. So people are questioning, why is pricing getting firming? We were told 2008. I'm dealing today, this morning, with Wall Street firms talking about 2008 pricing. I am telling you, one of the last groups on planet Earth you want to get housing information are from stock traders. It's just they they look at prices as they look at as a stock, trend lines and everything. And when it's broken, they believe it should go back to an X level without explaining why. So um, my job for the rest of the year is to showcase everyone that was talking about this for the last six months and how to talk about economics going into the rest of the year. So we have enough data. Purchase application data last week was positive. It's just a stabilization period. That's it. This is not like the COVID-19. COVID-19, I was all gung-ho. Here we go. We're going to have V-shaped recovery because back then, demand paused. It wasn't declining. It just paused and then just regained right back up. So now the weekly information becomes more and more important going out for the rest of the year because April and May to me are always very key months and are even more now because usually the spring's inventory is is increasing for for two three months now that's not the case we're hoping that we've seen the seasonal bottom and we're seeing the increasing but new listings data is still trending at all-time lows so if you have stable demand and you have low inventory no forced credit sales the 2008 crowd which i'm dealing with twitter today because some wall street firm said it does not have the sophistication or the education or the training to talk about housing economics in any fashion because what happened in 2008 was a mass increase in supply from 2005, 6, 7, and 8. And it was distressed sales, right? People were filing for foreclosures, bankruptcy, credit got tight, demand collapsed, and active listings were above 4 million. Today, we are talking about under a million in stabilized demand. That's what the data is telling us. Even if I didn't want to believe that to be the case, there is no way a functioning human being like myself could could change that. That's the reality of the world that we've seen for the last six months. So when rates go higher, we've noticed the demand gets hit. Like we saw when mortgage rates went from 5.99% to 7.10, we had three weeks of noticeable uh, decline in purchase application data. And then five of the last six weeks have been positive. And it's just working from a low base. So regardless of your ideological beliefs or economic beliefs, that's what the data shows us now. And now we have six months of data to confirm this.
You know, I think you must be a very patient person because your models, you're always like, just wait for 12 months from now. Just wait six months from now. I'm like, I don't want to wait six months from now. I remember when you told me that back in, in November and I was like, that seems like forever to know where the trend is going. But um, but now we do have that data and it's great to look at it and, and know what that means. I, I'm just saying this is the reason why we created the weekly tractor because data and numbers don't really care about you. They could care less. It just, it just, it's just a series of data lines or millions and millions of people working together, right? That do not care about your ideological beliefs. So if the data was negative still, then you go with it. If the data is positive, you go with it, but you don't make up stuff. And you know, the war with me and Wall Street for a while now is that stock traders are not trained to talk about housing economics. They're great in taking third-party information and creating a bunch of charts that mean nothing. They're wonderful at that. I give them kudos. Good for you. But when you talk about the internals of housing economics, and this is, I mean, this literally yesterday on Twitter, I i, I had a, a discussion about this, that nobody cared about housing economics for the last 10 years, or nobody cared about credit channels. Why? Because it's really boring. I get it. Like me, Saturday night. Do you know what I'm doing Saturday night, Sarah? I know. Exactly I'm on the tracker doing, article. Looking at yeah. charts. I am. I am <laughs> writing the tracker article because I'm taking a series of data lines and putting them together. If they are negative, they're negative. If they're positive, they're positive. Then we have speculative theory. Oh my God, sexy, hot. That is the bar. A lot of people want to go into speculative economic theory. If the baby boomers all turn 65, 30 million homes will come to the market. Or the S&P 500 can never rise because all the baby boomers are going to liquefy their retirement accounts. And, you know, there's, I understand the appeal of that, right? Sleeping next to a warm dragon's belly, you know, it's very comforting and stuff, but you're still sleeping next to a dragon's belly. So uh, uh, follow numbers, right? numbers over people. So now that we have six months of data, we can actually start to make sense of what's happening. Uh, uh, and, you know, Mike Simonson's webinar uh, yesterday was really good with that. You know, even though we both look at economics in a different way, because the our models in a sense are different, but they all kind of working together because the numbers are correlating into this. And this is why we believe Weekly tracking data, in an, especially in an environment like this, matters. And now that we have six months of data, housing data stabilize. Existing, so existing home sales can go up and down and use that 4 million base right there. But if rates stay lower and go lower, it doesn't mean that demand starts to get much weaker at that point. So uh, work with those equilibriums going out for the rest of the year, especially in April and uh, uh, May. So perfect segue, because I was going to bring up Altos Research data, which obviously that's Mike's uh, data that we're talking about. And so I wanted to talk about home prices. So according to Altos, the medium single-family home price for the week that ended April 7th of this year was 400 
$439,900, right? That's up 8.6% from the start of the year when the median home price single family was $405,000. And it's up 7.3% from the week, the same week ending last year, April 8th at $409,000. So I think it's just really interesting to see, you know, you and I talk a lot about like inventory and, and, and permits and all that stuff. And then you come to like home prices, right? And and home prices, I mean, that's not up radically, but it's also not crashing, which is the other thing that we're constantly having to, to battle is like, home prices are not crashing. You know, all of last year, people had talked about home prices crashing and the year ended positive. Now, seasonality in pricing is a real thing. Um, what occurs is that uh, pricing typically is stronger in the early part of the year, always is the case. And then pricing gets weaker toward the second half of the year. Last year was the first time in many, many years that we actually did have month-to-month real declines, not actual um, uh, seasonality declines. Usually what happens at, at every year in June, people start to say, here comes the price crash, and they take the seasonality of data and they don't adjust it. So uh, that gimmick has wor- worked for so many years. But last year was the case. So let's talk about last year. This is a great question, Sarah. Last year, mortgage rates went from three percent to six and a quarter percent, and then during that rise to six and a quarter percent, new listings data started to deteriorate earlier and faster than normal, right, on a year-over-year basis. So what's occurred is that mortgage rates went from six and a quarter to five percent, and then we had like three weeks of stable, and then all hell broke loose. We went from five percent to seven point three seven percent during a weaker seasonal time of pricing and home prices definitely because the market could not sell that price of a home like it did earlier in 2022 when rates were you know below 4%. So the the we had two extremes that happened in one year. We had the initial I mean this actually somewhat happened in 2013 and 14 but not not to the extreme levels. We had aggressive pricing early on in the year. And then we had a complete deterioration because mortgage rates getting to 7.37% was, you know, especially with the whole, where home prices were, people had to start selling their homes at less, uh, at less to get the product sold. And we just saw this waterfall collapse in demand. So now what's occurred is we're in a seasonal strong time of prices and demand is stable and inventory isn't breaking higher. So in that environment, pricing stays firm, especially recently. Now, what you're going to see is the Case-Shiller Index is going to have some year-over-year negative prints coming up soon uh, on the uh, on how it's weighted. And remember, Case-Shiller Index lags. We talked about this last year that we had like 18% home price growth. That's not the, that's not the real uh, trend right now because you know Case-Shiller lags. So you remember, you're looking at things that were written in contracts before that are selling through. But the upfront data has changed. And the only reason the upfront data has changed is because demand has got stable. We see it in the purchase application data. And remember, we still have above 20% cash buyers as well. So when you look at that mortgage demand, then you put cash buyers in together. This is why I say it's really rare post-1996 to get existing home sales trending below $4 million. Right? We have over 155 million people. There are dual household incomes, people with... with, with uh, bigger pockets that are buying homes. So in that context, demand is stabilized. 
We're in a seasonal strong price point. We just take it from there. Things have firmed out. If demand had kept on falling, which in some sense, a lot of the housing crash people has, were right. If demand, if we are going down another 2 million and home sales went to like 2 million and 1 million, that would be a different story. But that didn't happen. Why? Because November 9th, November, December, January, February, March, now we're in April. So different marketplace adjust to that reality. And this explains why the weekly uh, uh, pricing has firmed up just because even though demand is on paper, looks like what we saw in 2014, prices weren't collapsing in 2014. If anybody remembers, right? And we had 1.3 million more inventory back then at the peak of 2014, right? So it's different, different kind of dynamics. What I would argue this time, which is different than the other period, is that the affordability index is much worse now than it was back then. See, that's a legitimate discussion to have. Just make it about affordability and rates. See, that's the when people start talking about 2008 and massive supply and distress sales and Every person on Airbnb selling their homes at 80% off. This stuff's crazy, man. It's crazy for a reason. It's great to get people into the bar. It's great to get people into the club. But are you really dancing with that person on the floor? Are you really buying that person a drink? No, you could get them in, but you can't close the deal. So understand, go with the data. And that's why I think, you know, especially with Altos research and how Mike explains it, it ex- what we're seeing now is current and live. What some people are focusing on is something that happened months ago. So follow the data, follow the most recent data, follow the housing wire tracker. We'll close the deal. We'll close the deal. Okay. So now everybody in the audience is like, Logan must have been a dancer at one point in his life because you've talked about the slow dance between the 10-year yield and mortgage rates. Now you're talking about club and dancing. So tell us all, Logan, were you ever a dancer? No, but in a very, very long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, (laughs) the one commercial I've ever done in my life was me dancing. Oh my gosh. And At a you- club. And and let me tell you something. The technology is so old back then, nobody will ever find it. I know this for sure. Now, for me, it was very awkward because uh, I was a young high school basketball coach. And I literally, you know, uh, they told me when they were going to play the commercial and it's on the weekends. And I was like, okay. And I literally went to, went to the school as a coach and all my basketball players and students were mocking my dance moves and laughing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, they saw this. So <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, those days are over, right? Listen, if anyone in our listening audience can dig up that that video, I will pay yeah, money for that video. It, I'm it, telling it, you. Nobody will, nobody will ever find it. I know this. <laughs> it will not be found, I think. Well, let's talk about the crazy things that we've heard from the Fed this week. It's like they just can't help themselves. They've said stuff since the last time we talked just a couple of days ago. There's been more things. So if I'm out here and I don't know, you know, maybe I'm not super sophisticated on this. I'm just trying to run my business. What is happening with the Fed? Okay. So this morning, retail sales came in as a miss. And 
the inflation data was slowing down, as we've seen. I mean, producer price index year over year is almost back to pre-COVID levels. Um, so it's like 3.4% headline or, or, or core and 2.7%. So we're, we're starting to see some inflation data get to pre-COVID. But um, our one of our favorite people, Waller, you know, uh, this morning, this is Friday morning. So Friday morning, the 10-year yield is back to the Gandalf line. Right, we, we we recovered that. And for those of you who are listening to this, if you like video explanation of charts, go to my Instagram account. I'm a I'm such a nerd that all my Instagram videos on stories are just economic charts, and we go over these things. So it might explain it on a daily basis more. But today, the ten year yield went up. Retail sales were down. People were like what? After that inflationary week and weak retail sales and recession, Waller came out and said, "We need higher rates." We need higher rates. Banking crisis has calmed down, right? And it's true, the St. Louis Financial Stress Index has calmed down. So we need higher rates. So I tell people, I am not kidding you when I tell them they want to engineer a recession, right? And even they, some of the members might not use the word, but the Fed minutes uses the words. And so much that the White House had to come out and say, oh, we don't agree with the Federal Reserve's take that we're going to hit a recession. So engineer recession means people losing their jobs. So the whole premise of my Fed won't pivot is they need the labor market to break. They're telling us that they believe in the 1970s. Now, part, the bond market doesn't believe in the 1970s, and partially I don't think they believe in that. But they're telling you they want you to lose your jobs so they can get wage growth down. And when wage growth falls down, you know inflation should fall down. This is why... They look at the jolts data and they say the labor market is tight. So we have to engineer a recession for us to do our jobs correct. Our job is to have price stability and employment. And because employment levels are still good, right? they don't have a problem with 45 to 4.7% unemployment because Historically, you know, for people who track the Fed over the years, they really believe like four and a half to five percent is the natural unemployment rate. You know, getting below that level historically, they think is a bad thing because it'll push inflation up. It's never happened in the 21st century. We had COVID, we had a global pandemic. Pandemics are always inflationary. Now we see the growth rate of inflation falling, but they're still stuck on that playbook. That's why they are talking like the way they do. So I'm just going with their with their model, right? So, um, so yeah, Waller talked about that. Bond yields had gone up. Uh, the stocks are even down this morning. So if people are confused about that, look for our Fed guy. And again, I, I had another good question today. You know, with the inflation data and retail sales, why are bond yields? You have to remember how I look at the ten-year yield is different than maybe other people. I understand everyone knows the growth rate of inflation is falling. But the forecast was 3.21 to four and a quarter, 5.75 to seven and a quarter mortgage rates until the labor market breaks. Or that Gandalf line, we broke it for one day. You know, on the on the upside, we broke it for a little bit and we came right back down. So that channel is in April, right? And the reason I talk about channels is that I if if I'm correct, we stay in that level for majority of the year. Right. You can break a little bit out, you can break a little bit uh, in, but you know, it's just it stays there for the majority. So people have an idea where mortgage rates should be. But if jobless claims start to rise, which they did, they're starting to rise a little bit more noticeably. 
Then we get to a certain point where the Fed, because this is what the Fed's telling us, when people start losing their jobs, we'll talk differently. People haven't been losing their jobs big enough yet. So they are pound the fist, rates, rates, go up, go up, go up, pain, 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 engineering a United States of America job loss recession. That is the Federal Reserve. That is crazy. So um, where are we on, you have a line that you're like, I think it's 323,000, right? People have to lose their jobs or jobless claims. Mm -hmm. And when we get to that, that's where you think the Fed will have to pivot. Where are we in in relation to that number? We're we're over 240,000 on on jobless claims, four-week moving average. So again, when I talk about a pivot, I don't talk about them cutting rates. This is the Fed. They're old. They're slow. God knows I don't want to see them in a dance move in a, in a club at night. Whew. But um, when that starts to occur, the language will change because they got what they wanted, right? So I, so people think I'm like, you know, crazy to think this, but why, why is it? This is how post-World War II economic cycles have worked. They've told us pain. They told us higher unemployment rates. They're trying to be crafty about the word recession. No, and now they finally got caught. <laughs> it's like the White House is like, what? Recession? No, we don't believe it. Is. Uh, that's our opinion. That's what we wrote down. Of course it is. So uh, I'm just going with their language. If they all of a sudden came up and said, we no longer want Americans to lose jobs. We don't believe that you know wage growth is a driver of inflation. Okay, I'll change with them. They're not, right? They are not doing that. So engineering a recession has always been part of the plan. And uh, at, when they pivot or when they talk about it, then the bond market would, in a sense, get ahead of... The bond market has, in a sense, got ahead of the Fed already. The two-year yield, which is tied to short-term, it's already... you know It's a little bit above 4% right now this morning, but they're kind of already trying to peg this because why? The bond market can't be old and slow, right? It can't. It just doesn't It doesn't work like 15 people that are, that are slow in thinking. So... That's why the channel of the 10-year yield looks right to me, even though inflation has fallen and the labor market is still firm enough. And the two-year yield, of course, has a different story. Like, dude, you're cutting rates by the end of the year. So might not agree with that, but still, I'm just I'm just sticking with the forecast and what I believe since go like last October, they will not pivot until you lose your job. So you mentioned earlier what you do on a fun Saturday night, which is look at charts and look at the data and write our housing market tracker for us, which we publish every... Um, we have been publishing it on Monday. I think you and I have decided we're going to start publishing it on Sunday, get ahead of the market. Yeah. we. It, it's, like, it's like the Federal Reserve and the governments. We're going to do all of our plans on Sunday for Asian trading. So uh, we, we got to do this with a tracker now. So we're not going to do them on Monday. We're going to do them on Sunday. So people Sunday can get an evening, idea. Probably. And uh, Sunday, yeah, Sunday evening. And, and again, you know, when, when we look at the tracker data, um, we have more positive purchase application data than negative. Nothing spectacular, nothing you know, there's no booming demand right here, but enough to keep things stable. Stabilization, uh, new listings data growing, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll when this comes out, we'll have uh, more data. We want active listings to grow, new listings to grow in this seasonal format. That's I mean, it's really late in the year right now, so we're hoping that this is the case for the next few months, and then new listing seasonality is like j- July. So we don't have that much months before the seasonality kicks in for new listings, which when that happens, total active listings uh, uh, fall and toward the end of the year. That's been historically the case with uh, inventory. It's just when you start this late, 
you know, you, it's, it's, you're, you don't have much time. So uh, I was encouraged last week um, that new listings data is growing. So when, when this podcast comes out, we'll, all of you have read the new data on this and the tracker comes out on Sunday. I think it's so cool because with the Altos data, we can get down to the listing. Like it is, it is very precise. It is very timely. It's from the week before. It gives you sort of a real-time view of what's actually happening in the market. See, Mike and I are very similar data nerds because we we both love exact numbers. It's true. You it's know, true. and uh, you know, Mike's always said, "I've always appreciate how you like get it to the last digit." You know, and I, I've always said my numbers and dates and everything are really, really personal to me. Like they that those things, I, I just don't you know, lick my fingers and stick something on the wall and hope it sticks. Right. You know, there, there's, there's, there's a process behind it. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy with how the tracker has gone this year, uh, and how people have responded to them because it's a different way to look at housing economics because it's so upfront, uh, and it's looking forward rather than waiting for old data to come in. And if the market had churned, which we've seen, which remember like, you know, sales were going down in November, December. Hey, things are getting better. Oh, no, they're not. They're crashing. Oh, my God. The biggest month-to-month sales prints in recent history. What happened? Hmm. hmm. Be the detective, not the troll. <laughs> not the troll. The other thing I wanted to mention to our listeners is that we're going to start doing, you're going to start doing like a Q&A just on a, you're going to take one question, do an answer, and we're going to put it on the website. You already do that on your social. We're going to move some of that to um, HousingWire so it's easy to find. It's the only problem with social, right, is if it's on a story, it leaves. If people have to search through things, we have uh, great search capabilities on housingwire.com. So people, listeners, send your questions to Sarah at hwmedia.com or to Logan at hwmedia.com. Put Logan question in the in the subject line so it doesn't get lost and buried in my hundreds of emails. And and he'll start answering those um, on housingwire.com, which I'm really excited about. And list your favorite slowdown song. That's what I'm asking people. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, go ahead. List your favorite slowdown song. And For somebody that's listening, that- by the way, uh, remember, Brian Adams, everything I do, I do it for you. We're dancing at some event to that. So just a <laughs> private listener right there. Um, yes. And let us know if we can say your name on air, what your favorite slow song is. So this will be like one of those old radio shows, right? Where you call in and you're like, can you play this for me? And then, you know, that's the only way you could hear your music if you didn't have it, didn't have it on the uh, turntable. So we'll be like that. It'll be old school. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, not because I'm a boomer. Okay. With that, <laughs> I think we're done. Logan, thanks so much. Appreciate you being on as always. Pleasure, Sarah. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services 
and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.